never give up. I never give up. I never give up. Hi guys, welcome back to my Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is another fantastic day for an interview. And today I'm truly honored because I'm here in New Zealand and I'm I'm here to demystify mental health problems, to talk about addiction, depression, etc. And there are actually a lot of allies here that have exactly the same mission. And today I've got one of these beautiful people with me. I've got Tammy Allen with me. Tammy Allen, she's not just a co-author in our beautiful uh, Depression Light to Me book. Uh, you guys know already because you have watched this channel and I've been go- rabbiting on about it <laughs> again and again. No, she's also the director of Ember Innovations. She is on the Mental Health and Wellbeing Commission. She's deputy chair of the Suicide Mortality Review Committee. And she's a mental health advisor to the Royal Commission on Abuse in State Care. Exactly. That's what I thought <laughs> when I read that list. <laughs> wow. Tammy, I'm honored to have you on my show. Welcome. Uh, honored to be here, honestly. Uh, it's been a long journey getting here, hasn't it, Stefan? So uh, it's great, great to be sitting down and actually having time to have this chat with you. It's great. Exactly. Long time coming. Oh, uh, and it's beautiful because obviously our our journeys have been quite quite different, yet we have become those outspoken people yeah. who strongly believe that there is a possibility to make this world a better place Absolutely. by breaking down the taboos by by actually being open and honest about it but mm-hmm. in order to go to do so you need to be in the darkness yourself to appreciate the light tell us a bit about about your story i mean you don't just wake up one day when you're eight and say you know what I want to be on a mental health. Uh, how do you call them? Uh, commissions, commission. That's what I want to do. No. Yeah, yeah. Look, how did I that mean, work? Certainly, you know, without giving too much of the the story and depression made me away. I certainly there was there's been that moment where I think if I had told my younger self that I would have been um, a mental health commissioner in a country I wasn't born in, <laughs> I would have just thought, I'm sorry, you've got the wrong line. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, my my certainly my my career trajectory was never going to be in mental health and and you know to this day apart from particular papers you know retrospectively studying what I already do um I know I've not even done a degree in it. So, you know, my my career started off uh, I was I was a chef and uh, a caterer and hospitality and Australia's first female butler and you know, I, you know, food and wine making and all those sorts of things were my career, as was acting and producing and directing and and those sorts of things. So I had a career in, in the arts and entertainment and hospitality, um, flight attendant, you know, those sorts of things. So sticking mental health in the mix was certainly never on the plan. <laughs> well, just... having said that, having said yeah. that, I mean, if you yeah. look at the abuse that is going on in yeah. most commercial kitchens, you have been oh, yeah. no. <laughs> either on the receiving sure. end or the dishing out end, either yes. or. <laughs> or yes, both. that's right. Yeah, and certainly I was part of that that world where there were very few women in the kitchen at that mm. time and uh, and certainly it seemed like bullying in the kitchen was the coolest thing to do in, mm. you know, you know, the late 80s and early 90s. So I mm. did I did start my world in thinking, gosh, is this what work life is going to be like? Am I going to be mm. you know, bullied and abused? I thought, yeah, 
but um yeah I, I I kind of escaped that world in a way but still have such an enormous love and passion for for food and wine and you know I, yeah, I think I was telling you before I distill my own gin I'm right into molecular gastronomy as uh, as a thing cool. I do to relax on the weekend you know uh, make reverse verification balls you know it's like nothing to do with the day okay. job I go Hesten up north Blum and blow tall, move yes. over okay Hester <laughs> my absolute hero right yeah <laughs> and so many of the things that I still do are very um their, their heart their heart stuff you know I'll, I'll go up north and I'll blow glass or I'll I'll do a production for a show or, um and those are the things that are very different from the day job but um but I but I bring that creativity into the way I conduct my engagement with people really and how I try and change people's minds. I'm, I get, I, I used to be called a master of edutainment, which is basically how do we use, how do we entertain people, but make sure that the message that's coming through to them is what it is that they'll need to do to change. They need to be able to see themselves in that storyline and be able to relate to it in order to make changes that will affect people on a greater scale. And certainly I've used that a lot in mental health. Beautiful. So how did you end up in mental health then? So again, this is not a natural kind of, well, I just creep into that. Yeah. You know, if you're a doctor, sooner or later, you either get drawn to that or you don't, as simple as yeah. that. Some of my colleagues run a mile when they see a depression or an addictive person, yeah, yeah. while others of us get drawn into but. That it doesn't really happen with a flight attendant, neither with a chef. Last time I looked, no, 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 it doesn't. How you know the the short story? That neither of them makes sense. The short story is I broke my leg. That's how I ended up in mental health. And the long, the slightly longer version is I went nuts, then I got better. You know, and I, I say that with great humour because I I fully believe that you know whilst I had eight diagnoses between the ages of fifteen and and thirty. Uh, it makes more sense to wear the label of 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 madness or nuts than it does to tell people what those diagnoses are because I think that people have some preconceived ideas of what people are like with those yeah. diagnoses, yeah. of which I don't, you know, tick any of the boxes for them anymore. But nice. um, so, so to make the story a little bit longer, I had gone through a, you know, what we would call in mental health a significant, you know, mental health history um, you know, serious mental health concerns and issues and diagnoses and spent much of my, of those years of my life in and out of hospitals and treatment centres and rehab. And, and at one stage, one of my hospital experiences was six months long and I became so, um, institutionalized that I'd forgotten how to pick up the phone or cross the road by the time I got out. So those were my experiences. And yet none of those experiences healed me. None of what the traditional system gave me, helped me long-term sustainably with my recovery. Those are the things I had to find on my own. And so when I started to discover and find these things on my own, the seed of an idea came from a friend, which was you know, what if you were to share some of this? What if the system actually changed because they learnt from people like you who had gone down a different path? Absolutely. And so that kind of planted the seed for me. And then when I did break my leg as a flight attendant, the last thing you want to do when you love flying is to be grounded and sell tickets to people for airlines. <laughs> so I look, I looked in the paper and there was that ad. I just moved to New Zealand and here was this ad in the paper that said, um, that a qualification for the role is someone who had used mental health services. And I thought, what? I can now not only 
can I be open about the yeah. fact that I'm nuts? They want that as a qualification for my job. So that <laughs> that began my career. And I honestly just thought it would probably be a, a thing that I did for a while until I, you know, moved back into flying or directing or whatever. But I fell in love with it. I fell in, I think I fell in love with giving people hope and then seeing that hope play out. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's beautiful. And I think that is that is exactly the power that we discover when we have been in the darkness. That is the mm. same with me. Um, oh, it is, there's, there's a strong parallel here. How long have I been in the darkness? Mm. Now that you sort of say the various, various diagnoses that you went through, uh, probably I share that. Um, I certainly was running away from my trauma for the better part of 25 years. Um, yeah. And it was only... Uh, I'm at, well, let's rephrase that. I'm grateful to my addiction, to my alcoholism, yeah. to me using alcohol as a crutch, as a way of escaping my reality. Had that not been uh, the case, I don't think I would have ever addressed the demons that were were riding me every day and more importantly, every night at three or four o'clock in the morning when they play the worst of Stefan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the top hits of all the it's, stuff you've ever done badly. It's amazing. Oh, that's great. It's, I love that show. Um, and I had it every night. What about you? Did you have similar shows? Oh, gosh. No, that show still plays every night. That's, it's, <laughs> that's, a, that's not random. I mean, I think, you know, I'm such a busy person and deliberately yeah. so. I, I keep myself busy because it, you know, keeps those demons at bay. But, you know, as soon as the head hits the pillow at nine, I generally read myself to sleep. Mm. It's like my brain wakes up the second I'm dropping 15 off to sleep and it says, aha, now I've got your attention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. These are the things I've been trying to tell you all day and you weren't listening, but now it's quiet. Let oh, me tell you all the things that you've done wrong, you know, and uh, I'm much better. And I think that's this is what my story fake news is about, much better at recognising uh, which of those things are going to be helpful and which are not and and then labelling those that are that are not helpful. Um, but yeah, I, look, I think that the monkey mind, that busyness is, is just the human condition. I mean, that what's, that's what makes us human, isn't it? That's what makes us different from other mammals <laughs> is that we uh, have a monkey mind. We have that, that, that brain that, that keeps <laughs> us in check. Um, and, and uh, for some of us, that's literally personified in, yeah. into the voices we might hear. Yeah. I mean, in all fairness, between you and me, open, honest question here. Are you just as much a workaholic? So is that just not a disease? You, in you're asking right? me where I've swapped work for my addiction. Correct. <laughs> Correct. I certainly, I was longer a workaholic than I was an alcoholic in my life. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I think we certainly have the types of personalities that will yeah. will grasp onto something and give it give it our everything right whether that's whether that's self-medication or or something more healthy yeah. but I think you know even even in my gin distilling my favorite thing to do is to make non-alcoholic gin you know I love I love extracting flavors that's ah. my thing right and so that doesn't require alcohol to have a, an amazing gin and tonic it's just the, the 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 pure botanicals of plants mixed with a lovely tonic makes you feel celebratory so for me it's this is not the kind of the swapping out of one for another but the uh, the applying of that that workaholicism to perfection yeah. 
and knowing that, you know, imperfection comes many failures and that's the best thing, you know. You know, the Persian carpet (laughs) is built deliberately with a flaw in it because the only thing perfect in, in their world is God. So, you know, you have to you have to deliberately create flaws and failures in the work that you do. So, yeah, am I a workaholic? Yes, but only because I love what I do. You know, I think I would apply that to everything. You know, people have said to me, you know, you're the type of person who would never retire. And and I I can see that, but it also I would retire if I didn't love what I was doing. You know, that that's the point. If you love what you're doing and you think you're making a difference to the world and you can see mm. outcomes and impact from what you're doing, then mm. why would you ever need to retire? I think what I'd like to be better at is some work-life balance because I want to give that same mm. energy to my children who are 11 years apart and on very different kind of generations mm. and and paths in their life. I'd like like to have some of that energy for them. But, I guess that's that's yeah. the problem, isn't it? Here we are, on the one hand, being able to celebrate all those those beautiful little achievements, or not so little achievements, and but then the moment you actually stop, then there are so many other failures, just mm-hmm. by definition, because they are only twenty four hours a day, and we are throwing <laughs> ourselves at maybe yeah. a handful, if that. But then all the other roles um, for you having been, having done some amazing things at work, now having cooked for your children, having done some amazing stuff. And then it's nine o'clock and it's way too late. You're actually knackered. You haven't actually done anything with your children. Does it not happen to you probably just like it happens to me that I feel guilty? Yeah. That I'm yeah, a shit dad. I didn't spend time with them. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. You know, you wouldn't be a parent if you didn't think. You, I mean, in fact, you'd probably be a shit parent if you didn't think you were a shit parent. You know, I mean, it's it's a okay. bit of an irony, you know, if you if you think you're an, an awesome parent, you're probably not. I think, um, but but what, and certainly with my, with my son, who's 21 now, I experienced postnatal psychosis and postnatal depression. And I remember thinking at that time, um, it's, he would be better off without me. You know, he's got much more stable adults in his life that can raise him and that, you know, that's, you know, part of the depression lying to you. Right. Mm. But, but also, um, in recovering from that and helping many other women through postnatal and men through postnatal um, psychosis and depression. It's about making sure that if you can only spend one hour or half an hour a day with your child, make that quality time. Mm. And then it's okay if that child has quality time with other people, it doesn't diminish the time that you can spend with that child. If Mm. you can give it some, you know, and I think for me, it was knowing how much energy I had to give and and continuing to know how much energy I've got to give. It doesn't mean I don't feel guilty that when I'm still working at nine o'clock at night and my nine-year-old sitting there going, mum, 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 can you tuck me in? Can you read me a story? I don't feel, you know, terribly bad for that moment. And I was I was telling a friend who came over for dinner on the weekend when she said to me, you're such a great pa- parent, you're so patient with her because my daughter also has ADHD like both her parents. And it's quite full on in a beautiful, energetic way, but it's hard work, right? And um, she said, gosh, you're so patient with her. And I and I thought in that moment, gosh, I just thought I was a 
shit parent because I don't give her the attention she needs. And here she is craving the attention she not only needs but deserves from me if it means that I have to stop my conversation with you in order to give her the attention in that moment. That's what, that maybe I am patient. Maybe that's what that comes across because that's the moment that my daughter's going to remember not the five days a week where I started work at 6am and finished at 9pm and didn't really see her or I was in another city and, mm. you know, might might have given her a wave on WhatsApp or something. Mm. She remembers those moments where I've stopped my conversation to talk to her, even if it's only half an hour in the day, or I've I've paused what I'm doing to go and read her a little bit of Harry Potter. You know, she, mm. those are the memories that she's going to go forward with. Mm. And when my daughter wrote me a birthday card this year, she said, my favourite things about you are you do craft with me, mum, and we cook things together. And I think it's, in for me, it was in finding a way of involving my children in the things that I had to do anyway or the things that I love to do. And so if I had to wrap presents, then they wrap presents. If I had to cook the meal, then, you know, come and chop the veggies and I'll show you how to use a knife properly. You know, it's involving them in chores in a way that's fun because you are giving them attention makes me feel like a little bit less of a shit parent, I guess. Mm. But I, I don't, I don't mind feeling like a shit parent because I think that keeps me in check. It keeps me wondering how could I do better. So true. You know, without unbalancing the commitment I've given to all of my workplaces, you know, mm. you said at the beginning, all the different hats I wear, it's a, they're they're long hours to do to wear those hats simultaneously and I've I've got to make a commitment to those spaces that they will get the whole of me Mm. but then I have to make time in my life and you know I've got wonderful people in my life that make time for me too I've got an incredible EA that clears the diary you know for certain family events that need clearing or make Mm. sure that some time is protected for you know, me to go and get a haircut or something that's just for me. You know, I think those things are important too and they might uh, not seem as important or things that you can delete <laughs> because, so, but actually those are the self-care stuff that we need oh, to keep please. up. please, so yeah. please. I, I have to laugh because I got an email uh, from, your, from your assistant basically yeah. telling me she is busy <laughs> and really putting me in my place. And I, I had to say, okay, I'm busy too. Come on, I'm a freaking doctor. So she's she, a bloody, she's a bulldog. She's amazing. Yeah, yeah but, is, but, but, but I need that because I'm terrible at saying no, right? And yeah. you have just described 50% of the population yeah. and yes. the other 50%, they are just pretending to be good at it. They yeah. are, we all yeah. are crap in looking after ourselves. We all yeah. need such an assistant. But since yeah. most of us can't afford one, so you actually have to become your own assistant yeah. to say no, 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 until your tongue bleeds. And when yeah. was the last time that we have done that? No. We are bloody people pleasers. And yeah. then guess what? But I you- think... Having having an expression, uh, the experience of depression does that more. I think if you've experienced depression, then you're far far more finely tuned to make sure you're continuing to give and that you continue to feel guilty and that you, you know, that you you don't say no to things because you feel like you owe that to the world for the, the period of time you spent taking away from the world you know that's that's how your brain thinks of it but actually Mm. saying no sets amazing boundaries not just for you but for other people to remind themselves that actually no I need to say no to some things too we're Mm. terrible at doing that generally 
So, uh, yeah, I involve other people to say no for me. Indeed, which is actually quite nice because we all have strengths and weaknesses. And if mm. you, a weakness of yours is to say no, then maybe someone else can assist you mm. and help you with that. And that mm. might be your partner. That might mm. be a parent, etc. Yeah. It is. You're not alone. You're not not a single being with no one else around. No, yeah. we have got typically what 20, 30 people that really um, are influenced by you mm. as a person, and that can influence you. We might as mm. well surround ourselves with those people that can infuse us, but also maybe to help us to 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 guard ourselves in yeah. a good way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Right. So I there's so many routes we could take in this interview, but one of those routes that I really would would love to explore is the issue of suicide. Mm. Because we are living here in New Zealand. It has had, and I believe it still has, the highest teen and youth suicide rate in the OECD. Um and we we have got this is such a hard topic to talk about and therefore i i i would be honored if you could spend some time with me because sure. you are you are you are on the front end you're mm. on the cold front so to speak um and i would love to hear how you actually got drawn into that role mm. and what lessons you had learned as a woman, as a mum, as a being, mm. when it comes to to suicide. Mm. Gosh, I mean, we could talk all day just on this topic alone, and it's and it's off. It's often one that people shy away from because they don't know how to talk about it safely. So, um, I mean, I could probably start by breaking a few myths in that. Uh, you can talk about suicide safely. You can name the word. You can mm. you can draw attention to. Um, to the, the feeling being normal, that it's the action we want to stop. So I think, you know, nine out of 10 people we know will have thoughts of taking their own life in their lifetime. So that's nearly everybody. It's And, and to not normalise that as being the brain's way of saying, hey, I'm yeah. overwhelmed. I don't yeah. know my own way out of this situation. I'm backed into a corner. Yeah. If we can't talk about, that feeling of overwhelm in a way that helps us reach out to someone else. That's what it's designed for, that that kind of that the stress hormones rise to the occasion and make us feel backed in a corner. So we reach out to people, but our we've been conditioned not to. So I think we need to normalize that the thought happens. It's not acting on the thought that's the most important thing. And that's something you can teach kids. So even my son, when he, I think I started having that conversation at as young as seven or eight, I said, look, there'll be a time in your life, maybe not now, because he was probably in a pretty good space then. I said, for a lot of people, it happens around about puberty, but not always. You'll feel like, um, you'll feel so overwhelmed with things that mm. your brain seems to have this really great idea that it'd be better if you didn't exist. Now, when that thought happens, not if, you've got to take the word if because mm. that, you know, others people, but when that thought happens, 
know that one, the thought is normal, but it means that you need to reach out for help. Your mm. dad and I are here or, you know, your grandparents are here or your friends are here. Make sure that you tell them that you're feeling like that way because that means that we can all come in and we can we can work that out together. Mm. We can start pulling the pebbles out of the bucket to work out what's going on and make that life easier for you. And I think anyone can have that conversation with someone. Mm. Ideally, you're setting up your kids for understanding that that that, that that's a normal thought and when it happens you'll be there um, but if it's too late if those thoughts are already there still grabbing onto it and being really grateful that they've told you you know for I call it taking the claws off the bear because once it's spoken aloud it doesn't seem like such a great idea anymore it, it seems like something that you've you've shared and that mm maybe someone can help you with the, the fear often with people when telling someone else is that they're going to be locked up or taken away or somehow you know their their choices will be taken away from them but I I treat it as a gift someone tells me that they're feeling suicidal it's like great I mean not great that you're feeling like that but great that we can that you've shared that with me and we can work out what what next um yeah, I think that's probably where yeah. I'd start with that conversation. Which and it's not which, a difficult which, one to have no. for kids. Yeah. And that's so beautiful. And I have come a long way because I was aware how much mental health uh mental health problems are really defining our country mm-hmm. um and it is and i was i was very angry at one stage with regards to the restrictions that i saw being mm. put upon the upon the press um mm. because i thought why are we not talking about it more openly why uh, are well we that's going- another <laughs> that's <laughs> an Another issue, Stefan, because I think that there we we do know the research does shows us there's extreme danger in in talking about, particularly in the press. Um, there's extreme danger in in mentioning um, any method, any suicide method at all, whether it be in press or even in um, movies, in print, in books, and things like that, because what it, it what it signals is not. Not for the most of us who are well most of the time, but those who are already in a vulnerable space, they'll often grasp onto those methods as mm. as something that will take those thoughts to the next step. Mm. So the research does say that talking about it in the media is not a great idea. And we can actually see um, in our suicide mortality reviews, we can see direct correlating data with something that's been released in the media or the uh, the suicide of a celebrity and other people dying in that same way. So so there's really real reasons why people might call it censorship, but what what we're trying to do is what we're saying is we don't want people to not have the conversation, but we want to put some safety boundaries in the how they have that conversation. So no, no methods, no. Correct no places there was a um an art exhibition somewhere in new zealand recently that that had photographs of places where people died by suicide and it was just of the place not you know anything more triggering but that in itself um i, I went and worked with the art gallery to say i'm not asking you to take the exhibition down and we don't want you know, more attention being brought to the exhibition. But what you need to do is train your staff to say to people when they're coming through the art gallery, hey, on the second floor, there's an exhibition that it'd be just great if you pause and have a look at the artist statement on the outside first, choose whether or not you want to enter that space. And if you've got children with you, make sure that you're 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 ready and you feel safe enough to go into that space. Now, they don't have to be trained in talking about suicide, but they do have to warn people mm. that this might be a sensitive space that you need to be able to choose whether you're ready for or not. Mm. And 
and they were scared that they're like, well, well, no one's trained in mental health and what if someone's in trouble? It's like you, you don't have to do that. You just have to let people make their own choice because even someone as I who's, well, skilled and trained in that sort of stuff, entering that space without the warning that that's what I was going into was a bit confronting. And I think we have to give people forewarning that these things exist. There's not trigger warnings. That is very different from a trigger warning. It's mm. a, hey, we're very deliberately going to be bringing mm. the, the, a talk of suicide up. Mm. Just, you know, check yourself about whether you're ready for that conversation. Mm. Yeah. You say this is not a trigger warning. Um, no. What, how do you distinguish that? So trigger warnings actually bring more attention to the thing. So you start the thing with trigger warning, people are more likely to scroll down. It's just how human nature works. But if you're very explicit about what that trigger warning is, so if you're saying, hey, guys, we're going to talk a little bit about feelings of suicide, promise we're not going to go into the methods or anything that's unsafe here. So you might just want to know whether you're ready for this conversation. You can do that on social media without going trigger warning. You can do that in your podcast by going, hey, we're going to talk about these things. We promise we won't go into details. Mm -hmm. We'll keep you safe. Mm -hmm. But you may or may not be ready for this conversation. You might be ready in this this particular day and time to talk about this stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think this is so important to actually highlight that. When I first wrote my steps to sobriety, this one there, um, I I looked into exactly depression and suicidal ideation, and it was only then that I started to learn more about um, these links of copycat um, suicides, mm-hmm. uh, and one extreme version of of I think L.A. Times or one of the. Uh, a, a a famous person was mm. was taking her life in in mm. in a very descriptive way it was all there mm. and within within six weeks time and a chef mm. um equally high up there took his mm. his life in exactly the same way mm. 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 wow it's called and, the 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 werther effect so in in kind of suicide data we have there are two effects there's the werther effect and the and the papageno effect so the werther effect is what you don't want it's giving giving the graphic details that yeah. then create we know absolutely they create some copycat suicides the papageno effect however is talking about suicide in a way that concentrates on the hope and the story of recovery and the things mm-hmm. people can do and the way you can get through those moments that's called papageno effect because that's actually really protective mm-hmm. and we've done um i've done lots of worked with media on lots of things. We did um, an eight-page expose on feeling suicidal in Mind Food magazine a few years ago where we just talked, we talked to a whole lot of people who had an experience of surviving suicide about what kept them going, what got Mm. them through that moment, what their life Mm. is like now, because that gives people hope. Now, if people feeling really vulnerable pick up those sorts of stories and articles and media and and conversations and they see someone who, who was in the same space as they're feeling right now but actually managed to get through it, Mm. that has a positive effect on people surviving suicide ideation. Because ultimately it is depression lying to us. It is Mm. depression telling us in its own miserable, deep going Mm. voice, it tells us that there is no hope. That mm. there will be no more light and that you're not worth it. And when mm. you think about it, it's such bullshit, such bullshit. Yes. And it just drives me fake nuts. News. <laughs> oh, please, fake news, exactly. 
That's there's a reason you called your chapter yes. that exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man, yeah. Um, it is. I mean, it is beautiful to hear you taking on all those roles. Mm. But um, do we see actually a progression? Are we getting better in talking about it, or is it still like a Sisyphus? job where you try to roll your your yeah. big stone up the hill only for it to roll back down you have to start from scratch <laughs> to say we're getting better at speaking about it you have to t take that as different from we're getting uh, more people are speaking about it is not necessarily a good thing I think there's generally yeah gosh it's interesting because um in some ways it's been an incredible thing, all the, the you know, the, the campaigns that have happened all over the world in bringing a, awareness to mental health because I was part of, you know, a time and a place where no one ever spoke about that stuff. So in that way, it's spectacularly good. I think that's not to say that there isn't a flip side of talking about mental health a lot, and that is that, that there tends to be a little bit of confusion now between those that are not feeling great some of the time or or languishing as we might call it in that in that terminology to those who very desperately at that point in time need a diagnosis in order to move forward or need some really um tar targeted not in the right word but really focused work and therapy on getting past the most dangerous moments and sometimes I hear from those people who are far more down the pointy end or, or the most serious or, or um, acute end in that moment that everyone talking about mental health feels like that their experiences are minimized a bit so I think we have to be a little bit careful about the balance I'm I'm certainly of the opinion that that everybody has a lived experience of going through a challenging time and surviving it and that that lived experience is incredibly powerful and useful if we can bring it in as something that our society now and in the future values in the workplace in family the the ability to go through challenging times and survive is something of great value but we, we can't in that same conversation minimize those that have gone through far and as we can see in the book far more extreme versions of trauma that need far more um, focused work and support and therapy around it. And so we have mm. to be really careful about how we balance that conversation by us all saying, hey, yeah, but I've been a bit sad once. We've got to be careful in that conversation <laughs> in making yeah. sure that that doesn't minimise, you know, yeah. those who have gone through significant abuse, for example. True. So at the it's, same a, token, it's a balance. True. But let's be very clear here. This is not a pissing contest. Not um, at all. On, not exactly. At all. So yeah. trauma is perceived by each and every yeah. person in a unique way. There's and not the a hierarchy. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. There is no ranking. No. So uh, it does not matter what has caused you the trauma. Um, there no. is, it is, the important thing is it has happened. Yeah. And yeah. it is so important to actually just accept that. And, and it gives us a point of relationship, doesn't it? Yeah. It gives us a point of of something we can relate to in each yeah. other that isn't about overriding my story with yours. Exactly. It's about, hey, look, I, I didn't go through what you went through, mm. but I kind of get what it might have been like mm. because of some of the stuff that I've seen and heard. You know, I, I used to do workshops with a colleague of mine of which, um, 
of which we would we would talk about uh, trauma and uh, and protections that happen throughout life. To, to, and what we and the point was that one of us had gone through significant trauma and the other one hasn't. And I I have not gone through significant trauma in the in the definition of the world. I've gone through ex- significant um, and extreme experiences, but I've not gone through significant trauma. And so the, the point of this exercise was to step through our lives and say, um, we both ended up at the age of 30 with exactly the same diagnosis in the same place, you know, going on the same pills, having the same treatment. And yet she went through this and I went through this and we had different pathways of getting there. So we, so the conversation was more around what are the protective factors around people? And certainly the conversation that I think we're starting to click on to with suicide is that, and, and suicide ideology is not that we're not looking for a cause of suicide. There are many causes of why people might take, choose to take their life. What I'm most interested in, want certainly those of us that are in that suicide prevention space are most interested in, is, you know, for example, we know that um, you know a significant relationship breakup or significant financial concerns or abuse and trauma are one of the reasons why people might choose to take their own life. But we also know that a majority of human beings go through these sorts of experiences and don't take their life so what we're most interested in what what is the protective factors what is it about these people that had very same experiences or similar experiences mm-hmm. that help them survive mm-hmm. you know that's what we need to do more of and if you've got two people side by side that had the same upbringing and the same traumas in their life one takes their life and one doesn't mm-hmm. i want to study the one that didn't i want to know what kept them alive because that's i think the things that we can implement in, pre- mm-hmm. in prevention work true but and and again it's hard because we are still living in a society where uh, these things are relatively taboo we are mm. not speaking out about it often there is not an awareness of mm. people that they have gone through trauma that mm. is actually in others that has completely derailed others and mm. you are just shrugging it off you could also make an argument that their own diagnosis has not been made my example, I was a victim of gang violence in, mm. in my early teens. Mm. I did not click onto the diagnosis of PTSD until my late 40s. Mm. In between, I completely um, completely rewrapped my hypervigilance mm. as a good thing. Yeah, hey, yeah. see, I'm a doctor. I'm switched on. Yeah. You can't catch me out. Yeah, yeah. great attitude. Um when you actually don't look at it, what it really was, bloody hell, you know, PTSD, I ticked all, all the boxes. So bottom line is, it is really, really hard. The other thing I want to say is there are only so many Viktor Frankls uh, yes. in this world. So to actually find those beautiful people and, and hear their voices, mm. this can be quite challenging, isn't it? Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Um, may I ask, I mean, you are... Uh, we are both living here in New Zealand, and unfortunately, we are not a huge country with a tremendous wealth, um, yet there is a huge need there, and our mental health services in the public system are struggling, hugely, mm-hmm. hugely, hugely. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's rather getting worse with the flow and effects of COVID and with uh, a, a depression 
basically having a grip here. The financial winter is here. Mm -hmm. So we have just identified it as one of the key reasons for extreme stress in one's life. Bloody hell. Is there a chance at all? What can yeah. you do when you're when you're you're just about losing your job or have lost your job? Your mm. GP tries to find you some help, but there's probably a waiting list of six months mm. until you see a psychologist somewhere. Is yeah. that not a joke? Yeah, it is. But it, yeah, it's um. There's a lot of things we could talk about here today. <laughs> I know. I know. Sorry, did so, I put you in a hot seat? No, but no, 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 I wanna, no, no, no. I so, New, New Zealand's New Zealand's going through an enormous transformation of an mm. entire uh, health and social system that is going to probably take a decade to play out. Which means that you know those of us on the ground are are, are seeing things getting worse, and that's not okay. But there is hope. So let me tell you that the hopeful bit. So firstly, this, uh, if you live in New Zealand, you would have heard the the words 1.9 billion being thrown around a lot in terms of our wellbeing budget in 2019. So from that 1.9 billion, a lot of it went to, you know, different social services and justice and, and things like that. But the bit that went to health for mental health was about 634 million. And that was to put into a program called Access and Choice. So from a layman's perspective, what it means is that throughout the country, um, uh, there's about 400 providers so far, but that will increase over the next four years. 400 GPs plus continuing uh, are not only going to have a GP service, but will have mental health within that service as well. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you can look up your local area. There'll be someone you might need to unenroll from your GP to enroll one of these practices have taken it on if it's something you need right now. But they have what they call health practitioners. So those that might have been... Um, trained in psychology or counselling or something like that. And they also have mm. health coaches, so people who will look at your wellbeing in a far more holistic way and, mm. and suggest other things and walk alongside you. And many of these services also have um, another service that comes in alongside them called Afiora that's working with NGOs to provide uh, peer support as well. So there is there's great potential Um it's still not being rolled out as fast as we would like to see. There's not enough Kopapa Māori. There's not enough Pacific. There's not enough youth services. But these will come, and that's because that's where most of the funding is going to, to build those services and that capacity. The difficulty we've got here, and it's not actually not just in New Zealand. It's, I mean, you've mentioned it, and it's it's a global pandemic really at the moment is in workforce capacity. We don't have the workforce. We could never, exactly. ever train up enough doctors, nurses, and psychologists to meet our need. Ever, you know, I'm not saying in the next five or ten or seven years. I'm saying ever. We will never have enough clinicians to deal with the need we have in front of me, in front of us. So the answer doesn't lie in just more clinicians. Definitely we need it. We need to encourage people into training. We need to encourage people that this is actually a, a workforce to, to, to come into because it gives you meaning and purpose and you can help people and that's wonderful and we need to give people free training and, and we need to do all of those things. But as well, we need to stop thinking of our mental health workforce as a clinical workforce because what you and I know from just dealing with our own stuff and helping friends and family is there's your workforce. You know, we've we've got we've got aunties that come out of the kitchen and iwi and support the rangatahi, the young people, going through challenges because the aunties is what these kids are going to relate to and are going to do what they're told, you know, because uh, auntie, will, auntie will, you know, slap them upside the head if they do something wrong, right? You know, they've, they've got mana and they've got, 
the standing in the communities, but we need to we need to resource those people to get to get paid to do what they're already doing. You know, we need to build a workforce that's full of people like you and me that have gone through mental health challenges and addiction that are ready and willing and hopeful in working with people to try and get them through those moments. And we need to build up our peer support workforce. We need to bring out a lived experience workforce. We need to, you know, those people who have left prison and are doing really well, we need to get them back into the prisons in a way that's educational and supporting and key working and support working other people so that there's that pathway of hope for people. So you've got, you know, great services that are happening and are going to be rolled out, but we also need to think differently about our workforce. We won't be able to ever meet them, the demand or the need with the workforce that we currently have. And that's not going to be solved by just buying in more nurses from overseas because they will then go back overseas or we're, we're poaching from each other. You know, I, I just emceed a global conference where everyone was saying, but, you know, you you you, you poach from one continent to give jobs to another because you can pay more and then that leaves an entire continent without enough workforce that they need to meet their basic needs. That's not okay either. Mm. So we need a, a global mind shift into what a mental health or a health workforce looks like mm. and we need to let doctors and psychologists and clinicians at the top of their scope work at the top of their scope, which means that the entry point should never be a doctor. The entry point <laughs> should be, who do I talk to? What can I do yeah. on my own? What are some things to come about really early before things get bad? And then have a clinician come and tap in and be part of that team that supports, but allow them to work at the top of their scope. That's what we need. That's what we need more of. And they're the systems we have to build to make sure that those workforce can be employed. Beautiful. And we have seen that being successful, for example, in, in other fields, let's say pain medicine, where yeah. uh, we train physiotherapists to do an initial triage to actually uh, say, okay, you go for your physiotherapy, but you go actually to the orthopedic surgeon and get an MRI because I think yeah. you have got a disc poking out somewhere. Okay, yeah. and that's exactly that. So let's start working in teams yeah. rather than in isolation yes. because that yeah. isolation is just never going to happen. No, that's and right. Indeed. And and the, the the thing I'm most excited about why I moved to Ember Innovations and kind of out of, you know, the health proper traditional workforce is because I saw this enormous unmet need. You know, we've got 800,000 people in New Zealand mm. that say they need mental health support. Exactly what you said, you know, where do I go? Who do I mm. see? I'm on a waiting list forever. It's 800,000 of those people. Then no wonder we're hearing those stories from everywhere that are not getting the help they're asking for because mm. the waiting lists are too long or they don't meet the threshold of need. Mm. So so I, I'm super excited to work with entrepreneurs and innovators who might be able to fill some of the gaps in that space that our traditional services can't. They can go and do what they're really good at, traditional services, but our innovators with their fast, agile way of thinking can go, actually, I can build a service or I can, I can put a cafe on the corner that can talk to people or like some people have, you know, um, yeah. you know, I can build an app. But none of those things are going to be the solution on their own. But if we build a lot of those things, yeah. then there's far more choices and access points for people to go to. So that's that's the work that we're trying to do. But we're, yeah. we're brokering that, that information knowledge between what it yeah. is that people need and how do we keep people safe yeah. with this amazing expertise of yeah. of startups and so us and ourselves we're a bit of a startup and we're like how do we get funding for what we do you know <laughs> exactly. like to try and make sure that we keep giving the support to innovators and yeah. entrepreneurs to build the things that our system can't so interesting space 
Hell yes. But I would go one step further. Whilst I might not necessarily agree with our, our leader, Jacinda Ardern, um, the team of 5 million is actually the best way to approach that. We yes. all have got a voice. You can ask someone, are you all right? Yeah. And you can say and model in your own way, yes. it's all right not to be all right. Okay. Yes. And um, passing the buck, you know, exactly. we, we, all, we all have a part to play. If I, yep. you know, if I go back to my, you know, my other love glass blowing, the, the glass blowing analogy that I have there is that, you know, when you're making a piece of glass, you, you know, rolling it in fridge, that's like, a, that's a billion pieces of broken glass, you know, and when they're rolled together and they're flamed and they're put under intense heat <laughs> and intense pressure, they yep. become this beautiful thing that's all working together to create you know create an object of beauty Very and nice. and and for for our people too we actually all have a part to play whether it's answering a social media post at one o'clock in the morning from someone you barely know who's saying hey I'm struggling and I don't know how to look out to you and just being there for that moment in time to go well maybe um I'll stay on the line with you while you call 1737 and see if you can get some help or it's our friends and family just like you know I I had a cousin that would literally lie next to the bed on the floor when I was hiding underneath the bed and she didn't say anything I just could see her feet <laughs> you know I knew she was just gonna stick around and be there you know whatever you feel you can do you don't actually need to know the right thing to do it's just about being there mm. yeah beautiful 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 Oh, Tammy, uh, this was an amazing interview. Um, <laughs> I think I would, I would, we should do that actually a monthly kind of session. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> like, is it over already? Like, we've got so yeah, many exactly. more things to talk Absolutely. about. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's, I think, the thing that is, uh, we have got the power to change this world. We have got the privilege of choices that we can make every single second. And you can either choose to, in yourself, work towards getting better uh, with good habits, or you can choose to not do so, maybe not so good habits. Um, and it is what it is. It is still taking action. It is still a choice of yours. And I think the more intentional we can live, the more we can go out there and say to someone, hey, shall we have a coffee? Um, or, you know, how are you doing? The, the, the tiniest little thing can make the difference between a death and a glorious yeah. life. Yeah. And there's a moment in the in the in my story in the book where which was it seems like a tiny part of the story but it's actually an enormous pivotal part of my recovery was that a, I was in an inpatient unit and and a nurse came in and brought me a cup of tea. It was the middle of the night and no one else had shown me that kind of kindness. And when you were feeling like you didn't deserve kindness, that tiny little act of kindness of, mm. of saying, hey, I, I made an extra cut, do you want it, was infinitely more useful mm. to the turning point of my recovery mm. than all the pe pills and medications and, and therapy lined up. Because it's the smallest moments that make the difference that make people feel like that they're they're valued and they're worthwhile mm. uh, and and you know anyone can bring someone a cup of tea you know we 
Yeah. And I've learned since that actually it's not just about the cup of tea. When we give someone something warm, it calms our vagus nerve down so that the, the body comes out of fight or flight. So that was, you know, a physiological reason why we give people a cup of tea or a hot water bottle when they're feeling unwell is because your it signals to your body that actually you're safe. So you can stop sending all the blood to the internal organs and you're in a you're a calm, safe space. So sometimes there's reasons for the things that we do traditionally that we wow. might not even know. Yeah. Cool. And and I think also you said, you know, reach out to people and, and ask if you're okay. A lot of people will say, Oh God, but how do I what I'm too busy. Sometimes it's literally sending people a text. If you're feeling in a bad space, you don't want to really want to talk on the phone anyway. It's sending people a text saying, Hey, I'm thinking about you. Or I haven't heard from you for a while. Mm. Um, you know, I, I know things are really tough right now. I, I just want you to know mm. that that I'm thinking about you. You know, and if mm. I don't answer, it's not because I don't care. Mm. It's because I've got other things in my life or whatever. You know, being being close to those boundaries. Yeah. And even if you don't want to right now engage, just mm. these beautiful phones here. They are not just like little pieces of chocolate. You talk into yeah. and it is actually you can talk into and leave a message so either a voice message or a 30 second hey look i yeah. haven't heard from you and i just thought i'm thinking of you and i'm sending you all the love and all the energy you need right now send them a well, funny meme you know that's right. great too exactly yeah, yeah. exactly you know i've been supporting some a few friends through grief right now and and it's always hard to know what to do but it's literally those moments where i go hey i'm at the supermarket what do i need to pick up for you <laughs> you know, though, Beautiful. Yeah. the really practical things, yep. and it's the same with anyone kind of having a low mood or in depression or whatever. It's like I'm literally at the supermarket right now, staring at the dairy section. Can I get you some yogurt while I'm here? You know, it's Excellent. it's those tiny little acts of of someone thinking about you. Excellent, but exactly. So, uh, Tammy, you're gorgeous. Um, thank you so much for spending the time with me for sharing. A lot of very, very deep thoughts and very private thoughts, really. But I think you're living by example how we may all actually change this world to a better place. If people want to know more about you and maybe more about uh, the embers and more about the, all the other roles <laughs> yeah, that you've got, yeah, yeah. where can they find you? Uh, emberinnovations.org. Uh, no, just .nz. Emberinnovations.nz to find out about our work. And yeah. I'm probably best to find on LinkedIn. Perfect. Um, cool. Yeah. And guys, yeah. look down there into the description of the YouTube video and of the podcast because all of her information are down there. Tammy, yeah. thank you so much. You honored me for being a guest on my show. You guys out there, look after yourself. Live with passion. And maybe just, just you know, think what tiny little thing can you do right now to make your own life better right now just when you're switching off that that podcast here or that video think okay how can you look after yourself and maybe how can you serve someone else right now right here just with a little message you have no idea what good you might actually start there like a snowball starting an avalanche uh you might bring uh, a beautiful sign of light into someone's life so guys, go out there, live with passion. Bye. I never give up. I never give up. I never give up. Turn around.